Oh, very important. Poroma got into the heart of this with his endogenous growth model. The ideas in circulation and how they are absorbed and taught in a society matters a great deal. And Brian Kaplan has this paper on the idea trap. It's about how poor societies can be stuck in a loop of bad ideas. Yeah, and that's where the idea for the show came from. So what should we call it? How about ideas on trap? Oh, wait, are we on? Yeah, welcome to Ideas on Trap. A podcast about ideas on growth, progress, and everything else about the political economy. This is Ideas on Trap, and I am here with Aki Oyebodi. Aki is an economist, and currently is the special advisor to the Ekiti State Government on investment, trade, and innovation. Welcome, Aki. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. You came from the private sector. What are the cultural differences between public service and the private sector? There was this analogy I got from Arnold Kling, where he said public institutions usually have a culture of no, you know, where they are big enough and it's very easy to say no, and changes only happen at the margins. Unlike private institutions or startups where they start from yes and they can really, really drive change uh, uh, fast. What has your experience been in, in that regard? I mean, I think you have to understand that. So the public service and private sector have two fairly distinct um, outcomes. And Talib's skin in the game uh, theory, for me, is what holds very strongly here. You know, in the private sector, you could argue that as, uh, as an employee, sometimes you are a shareholder. Sometimes your reward is directly tied to the performance of the firm. So in a way, you have, you have skin in the game. You have some skin in the game. Founders of businesses, which tend obviously more along the startup space, those guys have full skin in the game, right? Their lives are almost tied. They are like Siamese twins to the to the company, right? So if you look at the founder of, say, a Paystack or a Flutterwave, these guys have left the comfort of their day jobs to go and set up businesses. They are taking the biggest bets of their lives on those businesses. It's like you going to a surgeon, you know. You are going to choose the best surgeon possible because if he makes a mistake, you are dead. Public service tends to be fairly different in the sense that, first, the reward structure is more annuity-based right? So you are rewarded for not making mistakes. The fewer mistakes you make, the better. So even if you don't change anything, as long as you've not significantly damaged anything, you haven't stolen money, you are likely to have a 30-40 year career, right? So the incentives are not aligned towards innovation. That's the first thing. Um, And that tends to make people a lot more cautious, right? Also because they are not significantly affected by the outcomes, right? That also creates a moral concern for me. You know, if you think about healthcare, you think about education, right? You could argue that my children will go to fairly decent schools, regardless of the quality of education overall in the country. And so because of those misalignments in incentives and outcomes, you tend to find that people will play it safe, right? Because they themselves are not significantly invested in those outcomes. Now, I mean, if you take my current role, right? Um, I've gone to AKT State to support the <coughs> development work going on there. 
But you can argue that, look, many of the things that I would be involved in, I might not necessarily be the beneficiary, right? Or it might not impact me directly. So if you sign off on a firm building a rice mill in a certain community, you don't live in that community. You don't deal with the environmental challenges that come with that decision, right? So you are not as invested in the outcomes as the people who live in those communities. But I think some of the things that can change is, for example, aligning incentives properly, you know, rewarding people for taking risk and some level of risk. I mean, there are areas where I think that risk-taking is not important. Things that have to do with lives, things like aviation. I will not advocate for cutting-edge technology or improvements in aviation if we cannot be sure 100% that it improves the safety outcomes. You know, things like healthcare, you know, approving drugs, for example. You want to test and test and test and be sure that there are no adverse effects, you know. So a food and drugs department, for example, NAFDAQ, is not a place where people will have lots of crazy ideas. Uh, But improving transport, you know, improving tourism, you know, um, improving production, you know, I think that government has to be a lot more, I would say, open to fresh ideas. And I think it's happening across the country in pockets where you are now starting to see younger people, people with private sector experience going into government. And hopefully, you know, we're a critical mass and we're able to influence significant changes in, in governance. But, but I agree 100% with that philosophy that, you know, improvements in government will not be radical. Uh, for the foreseeable future, and it tends to happen at the margins because it's also it's also less disruptive, right? And, yeah. You know, it's easy for for the mainstream public service to say, "Hey, this is how we do things." It's something that you hear in government, you know. Um, and I've worked for two governments now, so it's not it's not an equity problem. I'll ask someone, you know, why do we do this this way? Why do we charge these five levies? And the person says, "Oh, but this is how it was always charged." And then when you go and you dig deeper you find that it was just one man who just sat down one day and said, oh, charge this amount um, as a levy for, for trying to get a COO. It's not because there was some science to it. It's not because it was research or evidence-based. It was just the guy's belief at the time. And so it tells you that it's almost two things. On one side, one person can actually make a significant change. But when that person does, to unwind some of the negative outcomes of those kind of changes takes forever to happen, you know. So you you almost must be in the stubborn minority. You must be that guy who feels that I can make things happen and then start to build a critical mass of those people. And eventually I think we'll see we'll see government become a bit more innovative. Okay. But it's not going to be NASA. It's not going to be Google. <laughs> you know, it's still government. Yeah. Um, but you'll see some changes happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned incentives. Do you think that public servants are properly rewarded in terms of pay? I mean, you know, that's a that's a question where I have skin in the game, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly don't feel that. There, there are two issues here. One is that I don't think that public servants are well paid. Mm-hmm. But the second issue is that I also don't think that the public service is productive enough. Uh, today to ask for significant raise raise um, in salaries. I'll, I'll tell you point blank. You know, as a public servant today, you know my net pay would be about four hundred thousand naira a month, um, and I'm a fairly senior, uh, you might say, public servant, right? At four hundred thousand naira a month, that's effectively five million naira a year. Uh, you're not going to attract significant talent into the place unless there are people that one have earned income previously and have savings they can depend on. Or in some cases, there are people where both partners earn. So where maybe you are lucky to have a wife who significantly out-earns you and can ensure that the quality of life doesn't diminish 
significantly by joining by joining government. Or if you think you have maybe bigger ambitions in public service, that you're happy to take a pay cut to go and work in government. But it's very difficult to attract people to serve government. And one of the ways, you know, that national and subnational governments are now trying to sort of work around that is to get development finance institutions or development partners to offset some of the salary differences. But to what extent can you do that? For how many people? How scalable is it? And then where does a conflict of interest come in? Where some people might say, why should a foreign agency pay the salaries of people working in public service? But today, that's the only way you can do it, unless the salary structures uh, start to change. But to even show that we need to earn more, I believe that we need to be a lot more productive. Um, both at national and subnational governments. Yes, yeah. I think you're talking about talent. So the two issues sort of tie together in a way. That is um, talent and the knowledge problem and incentives in, in the public sector. Now, if you talk about safety industries, mm-hmm. maybe NAVDAQ, aviation, mm-hmm. and all that, if I understand you correctly, you advocated for some kind of precautionary principle. Absolutely. But what about the knowledge problem? Okay, let's take NAVDAQ. Mm-hmm. We know that the knowledge about drug discovery mm-hmm. relies with the private sector. Absolutely. Now, if you don't have enough talent at, say, NAVDAQ, mm-hmm. how then can they make the right decisions, even about regulating drugs? So how how... Should the government try to solve that talent challenge? I mean, I think Singapore and China are two good examples where you have to take a 20, 30-year view of building a pipeline and you have to send people to the best institutions possible. You have to give them a chance to cut their teeth in the private sector, um, understand how private enterprise works, what drives innovation, you know, etc., and then bring those people back into public service. It has to be very deliberate. You know, I used to work in banking, and I used to joke with friends that every time I sat with a CBN examiner, I said to myself that I understand the financial products a lot better than you do. And so how are you going to even regulate me properly? You know, um, and those are the issues that you face in regulatory agencies today, where the, the knowledge is, is limited, not because of any malicious intent, but it's really just because the people don't know better. So I think that first, Nigeria must be very deliberate about how do we send people to acquire knowledge, right? How do we help them gain experience? And how do we ensure that they come back and feed all of those things into public service? We used to do it in the past, you know, we had a lot of talent development programs. And I remember, in fact, I remember I was reading a tweet by, I think it was Tolio Gunes who was tweeting something about our first engineering PhD, the guy who went to MIT, I forget his name now, who came back to Nigeria and the government just didn't know what to do with him. The guy ended up going to work for Shell, I think, or something. That guy in China would be sitting at the at a senior level, a senior decision-making level, within 20 years of graduating from that PhD program. You know, if you think about what the Chinese did, not only did they encourage their people to go to the West to learn, when they came back, they also put them in critical functions, whether it was a research function, whether it was um, the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, those guys were now the guys today, some of those guys are the guys taking decisions for the country. You know, Singapore, for example, will say to you, you're a great talent, go and study elsewhere, go and do this, but when you come back, we're going to pay you top dollar, because you are the best of the best. 
I think that's where we have to get to. A situation where we are taking our top talent, we are exposing them to private sector institutions, both locally and internationally. But there's a clear plan about how to feed them back into the public service. I think that's the part we've missed out. Where now the public service is seen as a place to feed, feed our cousins who don't have jobs. You know, honestly, I can openly tell you this, that in my state, for example, we're doing a recruitment exercise for teachers. And the government has been very clear that, you know, if you don't get a certain mark, you can't qualify. But people in my community have come to me to say, oh, uh, but you should be able to help this guy now. He's got 30. Let's say the pass mark is 40. You know, it's not too far off. And I'm like, but these are the guys you want to, you want these guys to educate, to, your, to kids. educate your kids. You know, don't you understand that if I hire a substandard teacher, your kids are going to get substandard mm-hmm. education and you are caught in a poverty trap. So you, who should have more skin in the game, you're actually the one coming to me to say, come and break the rules for us. It's not in your interest, you know. And I think we have to understand that, look, public service is for the best people. Our best guys must go into public service, like the universities. Back in the days, if you had, if you made a first or you made a very good two-one, you were locked in to go back into the academia. Today, you know, we're almost saying that, oh, if you can't get into Shell, then come and teach engineering. You know, whereas 30 years ago, Shell and the engineering faculty were competing for talent. You know, so so I think that that's, we have to be deliberate about that. Our best people must be shown a path, right, into public service. Okay, okay. So now let's talk about you on mm-hmm. the job. Someone like me writing about public policy can say, oh, you have to do X, Y, Z. But I mean, someone like you on the job has to deal with practical issues. So now, which would a public servant prioritize between, say, fixing fundamental issues and um, binding constraints? I'll give you an example. Um, you used to write a blog back in the day, Tolu Anile. You know, I don't know why you stopped. That was for you. <laughs> that was for his blog. I think I only guest posted for him. Oh, oh interesting. interesting. Mm-hmm. So now, someone like me can say that, oh, first you have some kind of um, change in that area, you have to repeal the Land Use Act, mm-hmm. you know. Whereas in a kitty state, it could be a binding constraint that can be removed by simply suspending aspects of it to achieve what you want to do without really touching the law, you understand? So how does it work, really? I think land administration, for me, is a great way to discuss this problem. I think, you know, sometimes, in fact, let's not use land use, let's, let's use taxes, yeah. right? We always say, oh, states can't compete because corporate taxes are the exclusive preserve of the federal government. But I think that states can compete even on payroll taxes, right? So if I say to today that we want to be a knowledge destination as a kitty, as a kitty state, we should be able to say that if you come to work in the knowledge economy, whether as a lecturer, as a researcher, um, as an innovator, whatever it is, that you should only pay 2.5% payroll taxes, right? As against maybe 28%, which is where your salary band sits. It automatically means that if you leave Lagos today and you move to Ekiti, you are 20% up, right? And that's an incentive to drive people. And I think that's something that states can do and say, look, you know what? We want to own the automobile sector. If you come and set up shop here, you are going to pay 5% taxes, regardless of your income band, right? And so people then say, hey, guys, you know what? If we move this factory to Ekiti, 
you might not have ShopRite there today. You might not have IMAX, but you're earning 15% more. Yes or no? Yeah. You know, that takes you, that starts to give people a reason to move outside of Lagos or Port Harcourt or wherever. So I think that there are, there are things that <laughs> sub-nationals can do, you know, to compete a lot better. But, but your point around what do you deal with? You deal with the fundamentals. I always say that, you know, as a government or as a public servant, you must ensure that you are there to support generational change. And again, I always go back to places like China. If you think of a guy like Zhao, who was premier, he's been airbrushed out of Chinese history today. But a lot of the reforms that he started are the reforms that China still depend on 30 years later, right, for growth. Even though he died, you know, you could say he died unheralded, etc. The point is that if you look at China critically, anything that you say Deng Xiaoping did, they did together, for the most part. But you must be strong in your conviction that you are doing what is right, right? And you are doing what is right for the long term. So, but but you, it comes at a cost. And I'll give you a great example. In my principal's first term in office, he instituted an assessment of teachers that was deemed unpopular and politically naive. And I asked people, was it the right thing to do to ensure that you had your best quality teachers in place? It's never a bad, it's never a bad policy. You know, you can't say, oh, well, you know, you guys did something unpopular, teachers won't vote for you. You've got to ask yourself, you will not be in government forever. You know, how do you ensure that you build things that can outlive you, that can outlast you? You know, it's a very important, and it's always a, it's a, it's a problem, it's a dilemma, right? Because you also can say, if you don't hold political power, then how do you influence people? And I think for me, it's in playing on the margins and saying, look, how far can I push the envelope? You know, and is this thing an existential issue? Right? I consider education an existential issue. Right? And so I would say that, look, today states should not be devoting less than at least 15% of its budget, minimum, to education. You know, 26% might be, you know, impractical today. Right, because you also have issues with infrastructure, security, etc. But I would say, look, no matter what, at least fifteen percent of your budget should go towards education, regardless of what happens, right? And you must say, look, what are the fundamental problems I'm, I'm solving? Quality of 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 the curriculum, quality of teachers, uh, learning environments. You know, what what can I do to improve pedagogy, etc.? Those are existential problems. Land use, for example, is that an existential problem? In my opinion, no. I can still walk around that today, right? There are still things that within the governor's powers, right, he can do to improve land rights in a state. You know, I can digitize my land registry, right? I can make it easier to get a certificate of occupancy. I can make it easier to transfer title, right? You know, those are things that as a state government you can do. For us, for example, with things like doing business reforms, you know, some of the things that we're going to recommend is can there be multiple authorities uh, to sign some of these documents. certificates, these documents, right? Or must it be solely vested in the governor? You know, those are conversations that you can have at sub-national level. So, I won't say that, look, repealing the Land Use Act today, is it the easiest thing to do? No. But there are other things that you can do, to your point, to work around some of the challenges that you face there. So, yes, there are some fundamental problems that you have to deal with to answer you. And those must be existential ones, because you have limited gunpowder in government, right? You can't waste that gunpowder on something that is not super critical. So you've got to find what are the one or two existential issues 
on these issues, I'm ready to put my political legacy on the line. <laughs> on the rest of the issues, we'll walk around them, you know, as on a case-by-case -case basis. Okay. So let, let's talk about investments, which obviously you need to make some of these things happen. And we know that even the country as a whole faces some serious balance of payment crisis. So now, what, again, in your own experience and relying on best practices, what are the cheapest source of driving investment really, really fast? Some people talk about uh, the diaspora, mm -hmm. for example. I think currently the World Bank says remittances is about $22 billion, even though the government disputes that, but, um, <laughs> you know. But you also see that a lot of those remittances go to welfare for mm -hmm. families, for mm -hmm. individual households. So how much of an investment source can they really be? So what is the template, what is the practice, really, of really, really driving investment? Honestly, my personal view is that diaspora flows um, for an economy help to stimulate consumption. Um, I, I think to your point, it's a, it's a social welfare program. People are trying to supplement low-income uh, relatives primarily. Anecdotal information suggests that maybe 10 to 15% of those flows actually go into investments. Most of that also into real estate, primarily real estate investments. I think that where we sometimes need to look at better are domestic investment opportunities. And I think that subnational sometimes focus a lot more on foreign investments, sometimes to the detriment of, of existing capital locked in the, in the country. There's a lot of capital locked here that I think we can unlock. Um, I mean, one of the things that people talk about, for example, is how do we divert pension funds into infrastructure projects. I always say that it's a very tricky conversation to have because a lot of those pension funds are already invested in things like treasury bills, which yeah. is even going to the government. Yeah. But for me, it's not even how do you divert pension funds to government-driven investment. It's how do you use government to guarantee some private investments, right? So a great example for me is instead of saying, I want to raise a bond as a state government, right, to build a power plant. Why can't I have a private power plant? Go and raise that capital, right, from the capital markets, knowing that Equity State provides a backstop guarantee of some sort, that at the very least, you, you are going to earn a minimum revenue. So, have a minimum revenue guarantee of some sort that allows that deal to become bankable, right? So, let's say Toby and Co. goes to build a road, right, and knows that, look, I can tow that road because the regulatory environment allows me to do that in Ikiti, right? And the state government then says, well, if you don't make your two million naira a day on the road, I'm happy to supplement that to ensure that that minimum revenue is achieved, right? Those are ways for us to make projects more bankable. You're not really lending to the government. You're lending to private enterprises who have a backstop uh, guarantee of some sort from the government. Sovereign risk is a big deal, right? So I'm always keen to say, let's deal with people who are already doing business in Nigeria. People who are already doing business here are important. Um, are more important than, I would say, getting fresh investors from outside the country. Because these are guys who are already banked. They've banked Nigeria. They're like, okay, we're happy to do business here. We understand the country risk. We understand the business environment. It's a lot easier to get those guys through the line. It's a lot easier to say to 
a promacido, for example, come and take over a dairy farm in Ikun, than to say to someone who has never done business in Nigeria, come and do dairy business in Ikiti. You know, it's a lot easier to talk to a dangote, a stallion, to say, come and set up rice mills in Ekiti, than someone who has never done business in Nigeria. So I think you have to get a fair mix of both. Um, and also to ensure that when you bring in investors, you have the aftercare service that ensures that the guys get exactly what they want out of the state. Because there's head mentality around investment. Capital flows to where returns are are optimized, yeah. right? And the best way to demonstrate optimization of returns is the capital that has already come in here. What has it gotten? You know, which is why I always say to people that regardless of whatever issues you say MTN has in Nigeria, MTN is a great example of optimizing capital, right? And it brought, if you see the people who came on the coattails of MTN, you know, Mr. Price, ShopRite, all these guys, they came to Nigeria, even if it's the fear of missing out that brings you in, the people will come. It's like a, it's like a restaurant, you know. It doesn't serve the best food, but if I hire 50 people to stand outside, pretending they're on a queue, right, you're more, more likely to stop there to eat because you, have, you must think there's something good about this food that's driving these long queues. So restaurants have been known to artificially increase the size of the queues just to get people like you and I to come and join. You know, and when you get in there, you find out that the food is not great. You're already you're, 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 you're sucked in anyway. So I think for me, first is optimize domestic capital flows, right? There's a lot of capitals that sits in this country today or even sits outside the country owned by Nigerians that we have to bring back. It's only when domestic flows invest in the productive sector in the country that you start to find that foreign capital will come in. We have to use the domestic capital to demonstrate the viability of investing in Nigeria. So I always say that, look, we'll mix both, right? We'll go offshore looking for capital, but we'll also call local capital in. And part of what we have been doing in Nikiti is even meeting with people who currently do business in Nigeria to say to them, this is a great place for you to do business, and this is why. Okay, okay. So my bit of pushback against that uh, is that, okay, now, say you're trying to industrialize mm -hmm. and uh, you favor domestic investment. Mm -hmm. What about technology and knowledge transfer? You know, and that's a great question, honestly. You know, the truth is, you are, it's not going to be one or the other. Um, and I think that it's, it's finding the balance, right? Because knowledge transfer is not geographic. It's not geography-based, right? Yeah. There's nothing that says that the knowledge does not exist in businesses today in the country. I mean, when I talk to some of the BPO players, right, the guys who run business process outsourcing, businesses in Nigeria. Some of the guys are doing transformative work that I, I won't have believed existed in this country. You know, these are things that I think happen in Vietnam, in Bangladesh, in Mauritius, but it actually exists in Nigeria. The biggest constraints they have, quality broadband, talent, right? Now, those are constraints that we can take away. If, as a state, we say to uh, main one, pay 135 naira per meter to lay fiber to a kitty, right? It becomes a lot cheaper to get the infrastructure to a place like a kitty. If we say we're happy to offset the cost of training people, as long as you as the BPO company agrees that you'll take on these people when they complete the program satisfactorily, that's a cost that we take away for you. You know, everybody's happy. The state is happy. The people are employed. Nigeria is attracting um, a lot more a lot more investment in that space. I think that there are pockets of excellence where you can say, look, you know, knowledge transfer is even easier 
to achieve with local capital. So there's nothing that says that, oh, because the capital is local, you can't import the knowledge. You know, there's nothing that says that you cannot import the technology. But I'm just saying that you have to recognize that if you do not have local skin in the game, Dangote Refinery is a good example. Will you tell me that that project doesn't come with knowledge or technology transfer? It does. But where, whose capital is it? It's Please. local capital. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing for me that if your local capital is not taking risk in your country, it's very difficult to attract foreign capital. That holds true for most places. If you take a country like, again, I'm sorry I always go back to China. Yeah. But if you take a, a place like China, you find that a lot of the capital that was unlocked was domestic capital. Look at South Africa. One of the reasons why the South African government or South African economy can sustain systemic shocks is that there's already significant domestic capital mobilized. Uh, that any systemic shocks you find can be buffered by local capital. And that's where, for me, if you ask me, and I know you, we've not gotten into a macro conversation, yeah. but if you ask me, the central bank's single objective today has to be price stability. Um, because what you find is that people are not able to save, right? Household savings is non-existent. Wiped off. Is wiped off because people are spending 65 to 70% of their incomes on food, right? So when you spend 95% of your income on existential issues, food, shelter, clothing, there's nothing to save. If you cannot mobilize domestic savings, then where's the, sh where, where, where's, where's the shocks against systemic issues with, with foreign investments? Because whether you like it or not, your ability to attract foreign investment is not dependent on you. There are external shocks that affect that, right? Yeah. If the Fed raises rates by 100 basis points, it affects how much capital comes into Nigeria. Yeah. So we must be saying, look, we must ensure price stability, which then ensures that people can save a lot more of their income. And then that at least helps to stimulate a domestic investment environment. Mm. From what you're saying, it seems there's a lot of, and I've been saying that a lot with a lot of development work, there's a lot of planning. If your economy is not developed, there's a lot of planning to actually jumpstarting an economy. Now, what does that do to your free market sentiments? You know, I'm a dengue apostle to a large extent, right? <laughs> the, the only, you know, I always say like, you know, the people I, I follow, the sentiments I espouse, I treat them like a Christmas hamper. I take the things I want out of it. Okay. The ones I don't need, I keep aside. So when sometimes I tell people like, look, I love dengue. They tell me, but this guy you know, sanctioned the death of, of students, yeah. right? And I said, look, Deng's human rights uh, record. record, I don't need. But his uh, liberal views on opening the Chinese economy, I want to take that. I try to say that I'm ideologically fluid, right? There are parts of a capitalist market that I like. There are parts of a social welfareist market that I like. I feel that, yes, the poorest people need to be need to be supported, poor and vulnerable people need to be supported. I feel that workers need to be protected, but I also feel that capital needs to get significant returns to continue to invest. I don't hold any firm views, right? I think that the plans for a country will always be dependent on the time and the situation that the country finds itself. For example, I'm a card-carrying member of the All Progressives Congress, right? People say there are no, there are no ideologies in Nigeria, I disagree. APC is a left of center party. Um, really? Yes, it's a social welfare party. Mm -hmm. And that's why if you think about things like the social investment program, this is the only time you have seen in Nigeria where there's been a very ambitious 
you might say, over-ambitious social investment program targeted at various groups of people, including the poor and vulnerable. And that's a sign of an ideology. It's, it's the one part of the APC manifesto I can say 100% has been implemented. Um, but you know why it's important to do that today is that there's an existential problem in the country. If people cannot eat, you can't educate them. So when we say there's a homegrown school feeding program, it's not a waste of money. Nutrition is a big part of education. Because if the kids do not eat properly, there's nothing, they can't learn nothing. Right? Even getting kids to school, even if you say they are sending their children to school to only go and eat, at least the kids are going to school. You know? So having something like the homegrown school feeding program, for example, is for me something that I will forget the economic impact of supporting farmers and cooks and etc. That's that's even like a spin-off. The real impact is getting kids to school. And so for me, the next level of this conversation is how do we now measure the impact? How do we measure enrollment rates? You know, in my in my state, for example, I think we can show you some numbers of how enrollment has gone up in schools since that program started. You know, of how many children are benefiting from those kind of meals. Now, that for me is a social welfare program that is very important, right? But on the second part of it, I will also say, you know, you have to free up things like capital controls. You have to allow people bring in and export their capital as they wish. Even with these capital restrictions, people will still bring money into Nigeria. So for me, you have to take what works from different ideologies. Sometimes you are going to take some socialist principles. Sometimes you are going to take some capitalist principles. And we have seen markets, you know, straddle the contradictions quite well. They'll say, oh, it's market socialism. People (laughs) have started to mix. The closer you are to the center now, the more populist you tend to be, you know. Um, So I don't think that the world, especially the developing markets, will benefit from very rigid ideologies. I think that we've gone we've gone beyond that. You know, the iron curtain has fallen now since we went. Glasnost and Perestroika are long gone, right? So even the people who were ideologically pure have moved towards the center. I don't think, I mean, bar maybe a place like Cuba, um, I don't think that you see people hold very rigid views on ideology anymore. Even the United States has some socialist, protectionist ideologies. I mean, Donald Trump is a you could argue the Republican president, right? Yeah. But he's probably the biggest critic of globalization today. You know, um, you know. So you find that the UK is going through a painful Brexit process. That's an anti-globalization move. Move, right? Yeah. Again, pushed by who? By a conservative party. I mean, I have friends who are diehard conservatives. They don't. <laughs> they don't speak. They don't speak about Brexit. Uh, they, they stay silent on it. But I remind them from time to time that your party which is a conservative party, is the one that took the union to a referendum, right? Let's, let's not forget that. You know, that's not something, it's, it's almost, you should expect the reverse. Not should, Corbyn, not you Labour. Know, you should expect <laughs> Labour to actually be the ones pushing this kind of agenda. So it tells you that there are no rigid views, there are no, you know, hard-coded views anymore in the world. Mm. Let me ask you a bit of a comical question on that note. Mm-hmm. Where does the border closure mm-hmm. fit in the APC ideology? You know, you know, you know. The thing about this podcast is that they ask career-limiting questions, but that's—I mean—I'm happy to answer that. You know, honestly, you see, there are some things that are existential, and on border, on the border closure, people have asked me, you know, on social media for my views, and I've said, look, we have to be a bit more nuanced about this conversation. I don't think that we've optimized the decision process properly. I think the biggest 
thing that we could have done differently is to allow the people best suited to lead the conversation lead the conversation. Personal opinion, I don't think that customs should be leading a conversation about trade. There's a reason why we have a trade office. There's a reason why we have a ministry of trade and investment, right? That ministry should be front and center of the conversation. I should draw in the different parties on a need on a need to know or need to be their basis. Um, so I think in terms of coordination, we have led the conversation from a customs perspective, which is not where we should lead the conversation from. And so that, for me, is the biggest issue. But should our neighbors play by the rules? Yes, they should, right? Is transshipment a major issue? Yes, it is. You know, is the Beninoa economy designed to exploit Nigeria? Yes, it is. That is the reality. How is that? Please explain. If you sit down and you create, an, and I'll send you some, some work that shows that, look, for the last 30, 40 years, these guys have built an industry basically to rebag and repackage products, right? Against the ECOWAS protocols, right, into Nigeria. They, it's a small economy. It, I mean, we laugh about it and say it's Nigeria's 37 states. But if you think about, this is not the first time we are closing borders. The thing is that we've repeated this thing so many times, and I'm worried that we are still not learning that these are symptomatic issues, and we're not dealing with the root cause, right? For me, it is how do we introduce technology into surveillance, into border surveillance. These are security implications. Forget rice. Drugs coming through these borders, guns coming through these borders, they are far more serious existential issues, right, that we need to solve for. You know, how do we do the surveillance? How do we ensure that the cultural trade flows are not short? Remember, there are families on both sides of the divide, right? There are Yorubas across both sides of the border. You know, how do we ensure that these traditional trade corridors are not short? But we also ensure that the territorial integrity of the country is protected. So I don't think that it's a one-size-fits-all discussion. I think that it's a more nuanced conversation. Is the border closure the right thing to do? I don't know. I think history will judge. Um, but I definitely think that the Beninoa government needed this kick up the backside. Now, should this start from customs? No. I think we should sit down and say, what is our broader trade position? And what position do we want these guys to take on board? I think we should be able to say, look, how do we collaborate with you? Can we, for example, because of the efficiency issues with our ports, can we have a situation where goods coming through the Beninoa ports, they are processed through there and they earn a fee for that, right? And then those goods come into Nigeria. You know, that is a way to think about it. Even from a Nigeria perspective, sometimes we slap levies on products that are against some of these are protocols, right? We have a common external tariff. We sometimes go against that and we say, oh, 70% duty, right? Meanwhile, the rest of the sub-region is charging 20%. You know, but can we say to these guys, guys, you know what? Out of these 20%, you guys take 10, we take 10. 10 is better than zero. Yeah. You know, let's start to have those conversations. That is the conversation that we need to have. And I think that's the conversation we're not having, right? It must, it can't be a stick all the time. It has to be a carrot and stick approach. We've got to say, oh, come, how can we optimize this process? These things are coming into Nigeria anyway. How do we move exports? How do we ensure that you can process some of our exports? You know, and that's a conversation that we should have as a sub-region. How do we ensure that Nigerian customs officials, if this is what your port is 
is built for. We might as well embed our people there, you know, and ensure that we are seeing what is coming in. You know, those are the conversations I think we should have. You know, how does Nigeria expand? And before you know it, because we are the biggest economy in the sub-region, we have to own that, that leadership. You know, and, and for me, that is a bigger issue. That how do we sit with our partners and say, okay, use your ports as entry points into Nigeria as well. But the the trade-off is that our people will be part and parcel of your process to see what is coming in. I think those are the conversations that we need to have if we're not having. Uh, but it, did something need to be done? Absolutely. And I don't think that this is an APC or PDP issue. This is an existential issue for Nigeria. So it's not a partisan ideological issue. This is something that we need to resolve. Yes, I know that there are people who have very strong views. You should not show your borders, etc. You should not do this free trade, blah, blah, blah. But there's no real free trade anywhere. You know, True. I mean, you know, when, when, you, when, you, when you think about it critically, Yours what is free trade? It's free trade. Yeah. What is free trade? There are restrictions to trade. And it's a per country restriction. It's just degrees. It's just degrees. And it's about where you are as a country in your development, what is important to you. If the United States says today, well, we don't want to allow wheat into our country, they won't. You know, Mr. Trump, for example, <laughs> is very keen to say, um, uh, Mr. Cook, you know, you have to manufacture more of your inputs in, in the United States. You know, is that free trade? You know, so you've got to ask yourself, what is free trade? You know, free trade is a misnomer. Yes, you want freer trade. You want to liberalize as much as possible. But you want to liberalize within certain conditions, you know. And ultimately, the job of the government is to optimize value for Nigeria. Right? How that optimization of value happens is then dependent on where we are as a country at that point in time. So, yeah, I mean, there are other things that we have to do. Um, with the borders and their conversations that we need to have with our neighbors. And I know that some of those conversations are happening. Uh, but is there a straightforward answer to that? I don't think it's a yes or no. It's not a binary conversation at all. Okay, so now, here's my argument. And um, a bit of a counter to your position. Yes, I take your point on territorial integrity and the need to actually have a safe and secure border. Absolutely important. But don't you think we are treating the trade issue a bit too much as a zero-sum? Yes, I get why transshipment is a problem. But if you consider the size of Nigeria's economy and what I think our ambition should be, if we actually focus a lot of our development strategy and policies in areas like building export disciplines in high-tech manufacturing goods... I don't think it will really matter if rice is coming from the Benenoa border. Here we really. go. Here we go again. <laughs> you know, so because like someone, actually a guest of mine, said that rice in this dispute has become a bit of a political crop. And um, was that Mr. Fawaini? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, you know, so. And um, tomorrow it's going to be tomatoes or fertilizers or what? But is that really? Aren't we really obsessing over uh, table stakes, so to speak? Great question. And I think honestly, first it's not a zero sum conversation. I always say you can walk and chew gum, you know, at the same time. I don't think that the border issue 
precludes us from focusing on export discipline. And I think, in fact, export discipline is something that, as a country, we haven't paid any attention to. I spoke with someone who is very knowledgeable about exporting. Um, so this is reported speech. And he said to me that, look, for him today, as, C as the CEO of a large company, he has to go through 14 steps uh, to export his products out of Nigeria. And that even prevents his company from using Nigeria as a hub for sub-regional uh, production. And I think for me, the, there are two issues, right? There's the single window conversation, which I hope our government, and when I say our government, our APC government is able to resolve before 2023. I think it will be the single most important uh, policy issue um, as, as regards export discipline that we can resolve. Just ensuring that, look, everybody, you can do everything in one place, right? And you don't have to go through the multiplicity of agency interaction. I think that is a critical part of the next wave of um, our doing business reforms. And I know that there are many stakeholders in that space that need to be managed. But I think that navigating that is a critical thing for, for the government. I think that obviously the port efficiency is a problem. Um, and as an individual, I'm very pleased to hear and welcome the development of new ports. Um, I think the Badagri Deep Sea Port is super important. I think having something up in the south-south, potentially around Akwaibom, is very important. Because if you think about places like Calabar, people say, why is that port not efficient? I don't know the economic decision of citing a port in Calabar. I don't know the draft, if the draft was taken into consideration. Many of the locations we're talking about are shallow draft locations that will take significant amount of money to dredge, and therefore it weakens the business case for this port. So when people say, oh, you know, why Lagos? I mean, the most obvious reason for Lagos is the draft. You know, so I think that what we have to be able to do is to decentralize port infrastructure to ensure that goods can move out of Nigeria fairly, fairly easily. Um, but I, I hear you about export discipline, you know, and I hear you about focusing on special economic zones. And that's why I was very happy to see the special economic zone company uh, set up, even though that has run into some legislative challenges at the moment. We are hopeful that it will be resolved very early this year. Um, in our states, for example, in Ekiti, we are keen to set up a special economic zone, one for the knowledge economy, and that's to export services, right? And so things like business process outsourcing, which is effectively an export, yeah. if you think about it, is because we feel like service exports helps us to leapfrog some of the infrastructure challenges that you face with industry and manufacturing, right? Challenges around power, challenges around transport, <clears throat> challenges around ports, limitations. So we, we, we think that focusing on services helps us to navigate around those constraints. And there's no reason why we can't be a BPO hub in the country. If we get broadband and dedicated power rights, I hear from the people who should know that Nigerians speak particularly toneless English. Therefore, we need less accent training than, say, the Southeast Asian market, which is the hub of that space now. You know, So we have a very critical upside. The other thing is that at our time zones, we are very well um, set for sort of like the Central European markets, etc. And labor is cheap here, you know, cheaper, I would say, here. We have some of the building blocks in place to be a service export destination. The other thing I would say with the SEZ is that we also feel that from an agri perspective, um, we definitely should be thinking about exporting 
a lot more of our produce. Um, and to your point, you know, I don't see any reason why things like rice or tomato should be, you know, um, should be a political issue, right? I think for me, absolutely correct that we should be building export discipline around agriculture. And there's no reason why we should not focus on certain crops, right? Whether it's maize, whether it's cassava, you know, especially with a lot of the gluten-free uh, direction that nutrition is going towards, you know. Cassava as the base of the gluten-free export market is certainly very sellable. Um, so, I mean, I 100% agree that export discipline should be where we're focused, and I think that we can do both. So I don't think that this precludes um, that conversation from happening. Yeah. Um, final point, I think, is we, we need to think about sort of charter cities and SEZs and the legislation around that a lot better. The process where people just go and register in a free trade zone just because of tax uh, incentives, is a, for me, is a waste of time. Um, because you now have a situation where two companies are competing. One of them is paying taxes. The other one is not because they are in a free trade zone. Actually, we should be giving the people that incentive if they are exporting, right? There are some misnomers. You know, there are some things that need to be adjusted. If a place is a special economic zone, it should be because it's geared towards making Nigerian products more competitive internationally. And if we're not able to deliver that, then should you actually get the benefits, the fiscal benefits? I don't think so. Now, this is my personal opinion. And these are some of the issues that I think that we need to debate a lot more vigorously. I think just generally speaking, you know, across all the things we've discussed, one of the things I, I worry about is that we're not having the right intellectual discussions about policy. You know, we are there discussing, you know, which governor, you know, believes in stomach infrastructure, you know, which uh, which party does A, which party does B, you know, uh, somebody brought Facebook to Nigeria, uh, <laughs> this other person, you know, does not believe in free press. I think that we are losing the opportunity to have a lot of intellectual debates. You know, one of the things that I love about China in the 70s and 80s, those guys fought themselves on the pages of newspapers with intellectual arguments. And when they went to battle, it was a battle of ideas. It wasn't a personal discussion. It wasn't that I dislike you. It wasn't that you're a member of a... They were all one party, right? They were all CCP. But the intellectual arguments were fought vigorously, bitterly, at, at some point, right? So, so why do you think we are having problems? I mean, is it, is it that our national IQ is low? Because China and the whole of Asia has that going for them. I don't think... Look, I think that these guys have also developed a nation of, over a much longer period. True. You know, we're talking about a civilization that goes across, you know... About 5,000 Thousands years. of years. Yeah. In that period, they've never had a period of where, where intellectual debates have been frozen. We have had periods where we've just had a freeze. I mean, we are 20 years into a democracy, right? I don't think between 1979 and 1999 there was a space for any intellectual discussion, right? Everything was done by decree and by fiat. So I think you're going to have to build that over time. I also think that our universities are not doing enough, right? I mean, I expect today professors of economics should be writing about the implication of land border controls. We should have papers coming out. You know, we should have people discussing these matters, right? Why do we have professors of economics in Nigeria who cannot debate existential issues that face the country, who cannot say, this, this is our view? I mean, how many economic 
uh, positions do you read outside the monetary policy committee of the central bank? I mean, if you, who, who else shares public views? You know, you are dependent on MPC members, uh, you know, personal statements as the basis. And in, in a, lot, a lot of these conversations, there's a lot of groupthink, yeah. right? Because they've already made a decision and they're just now writing statements to support those decisions. But I expect the back page of our newspapers, I mean, whether or not you agree with Henry Boyer of Blessed Memory, yeah. you know, he yeah. certainly brought a view. You might not agree with the view, yeah. you know what I mean, but yeah. he brought a view that he actively debated. I, I look at our, our institutions and I say, where are the discussions happening? Where's the think tank, you know, driving this conversation? If I look at the EAC, for example, one of the things I say to people is that, well, I, I certainly am rooting for the EAC. It's chaired by my former boss. But I also feel like we've lost the benefit of having people like Doin Salami and Charles Soludo and the rest of the members from sharing their personal views in public domain. Because now, you know, they're a member of an advisory council. They can't really speak publicly because it might be taken as the view of the EAC, etc. But we need Nigerian intellectuals to step up their game. That, for me, is where we are missing it. Because I remember there was a period where I think it was six of us, I can't remember how many of us, did a week's um, different pieces every day on, on foreign exchange liberalization, right? And I was amazed at the debates that it stimulated, you know? And all of us were not, I mean, I won't say that we're academics, you know? Maybe out of five of us, not so bikili was anyone that has a PhD. But it was important to have people at least put those ideas in the open. And let's debate them. You know, that's one of the reasons why I like that people like Faye constantly Engages. Um, engage in these debates. Because let's have an ideas-based conversation. I mean, I think Pius Sadeh Somi of Blessed Memory said this and said that, you know, the reason I write is not because I want to change. I think I can change the views or the behavior of these uh, hard-headed government officials. But it's so that 2,000 years from now, you know, someone is not going to come and say these people live like animals and they didn't think, you know, that, you know, in the midst of all of this madness, let them even see records that some of us were thinkers, some of us were speaking, you know. And I found it quite, I mean, it was quite sad for me that that was his last uh, public uh, post or article, you know, because it was almost like, like a man that had a premonition that, you know, um, I might not be here for much longer, but I need to let my ideas outlive me. And I think that's what we should be doing. You know, we're talking about China now. We can read the arguments of 1978, 1984, and we can see how those arguments mirror Nigeria of 2019. If those things were not there, we wouldn't even be able to apply them to our current realities. But who is writing the stories of Nigeria today? So I think that's one thing I would say that, you know, the intellectual debate is not public. And I don't even know that it's happening. I don't know that the universities are writing. And that's one thing that we should be focused on. Not Asu going on strike. I mean, the real issue is what are you contributing to town? How are town and gown meeting? You know, how are those two sectors interacting and integrating? You know, I, you know, it, it goes even beyond writing. How are we preparing people for the workforce? I was very happy to see the UI vice chancellor, you know, engaging, saying this is what we're doing as a university, and I think that that's the kind of engagement that we want to see. We want people to come and to share their opinions. You've studied economic theory for 30 years. How does our current reality fit into this study? You know, and I think that's how you improve the quality of public discourse. Yeah, uh, so now, in terms of public discourse, do you think that there is too much ideology in that space? 
too little. You know? Really? I think there's too little. Okay, so I was pointing this out to someone. You mentioned the EAC, right? Mm-hmm. I think except for doing salami, mm-hmm. really, I think every other person on that advisory council has some sort of protectionist sentiments. I disagree. Really? I disagree. Okay. Some are. Some have. Some don't. I know Soludo does. Mm-hmm. Not- I, know, I know Bismarck does. I mean, I don't think, I think to be honest, I, you know, everybody has some protectionist ideology. Everybody does. Um, I won't say Soludo does that much. Um, he was opposed to the EPA, for example. But for some, for some good reasons, the thing is that this thing is not a wholesale opposition. There are parts of these agreements that, to be honest, do not strategically support Nigeria's economic development. You have to recognize that when people come to this table, they come to the table holding nationalistic views, disguised as globalized views. At the end of the day, everybody wants what's best for them. And I think that, again, until recently and until Ambassador Sakwe of Blessed Memory, we didn't have an office that was coordinating our treaties, our agreements. People were signing all sorts of things without even knowing the implications of what they were signing. So I don't think that the opposition was wholesale. There are some people there whose views I can't say I know for sure. I mean, there's the Yabomasha, for example. She used to be at World Bank, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, I don't think that if you spend so much time at the World Bank, you would hold fairly strong protectionist views, mm. unless you were able to mask it sufficiently. Mm. But there are some people that obviously, I mean, they, Odeo Joe, for example, is very clear about where he stands on some of these things, you know. But I think the mix is good. And the debates, look, it's useful to have people from both sides of the divide. True. You know, we improve the quality of the discourse by having the divergent views, you know, and having diversity of opinions. Uh, so let's talk about the influence of ideology in Nigerian politics. Mm-hmm. Is it too much or too little? And what would work in terms of generating ideas? Look, at the end of the day, I think we're still fairly underdeveloped in terms of our politics because voter engagement is still at, I would say, at the kindergarten phase of voter enlightenment and voter engagement. I think that people are still too poor to engage in high-level discourse. And so for people, it's still a function of, I want to survive, which is why you find that people are willing to trade the long-term benefits for the immediacy of pay me 2000 and I'll vote for you. You know, and I tell people that, look, this is similar to Lincoln back in the day. I don't know if you remember, Lincoln's slogan was vote yourself a farm. And, I mean, I joke about it and I say, in Nigeria, the, it vote yourself a pot of stew, right? <laughs> um, but if you think about it, at that time, people were only interested in give me land, right, in the U.S. So when you're faced with existential issues, people can't think about ideology. It's too abstract, they're looking for mundane, they're, they're more mundane in their expectations, you know. But I think that when you start to improve the quality of life, people then can start thinking, it's almost like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yeah. right? They start to think about, oh, what's more important? You know, who's thinking about education? Who's improving healthcare? I say to people that, look, you should be able to say as a woman that my biggest issue today is maybe gender mainstreaming, maybe maternal mortality, and say, look, I'm going to only support a government that emphasizes these two things. 
if you do not agree to these three issues, then we will not vote for you. The unions are very good at it. And this is why I always say about the stubborn minority, right? The unions, the market women, whatever you say, they get what they want. You might disagree with what they want, but they get it, right? The trade unions get it because they will just down tools and they force you to a table. Now, how do we as a broader population start to force people to that table? And this is why I think that the advent of social media is a good thing. Because more and more, I mean, I was happy to see people engage in a discourse around foreign exchange, you know, and exchange rates. You know, everybody suddenly became an economist and had a view of where the Naira should be trading. You know, it's a good conversation to have. People are now saying, should we close our borders? Whether those views are knowledgeable or not, I want those views on the table. Those are views to have. You know, they're important views. So I don't... I don't. I think that we're still at a growing phase, and I think it will only continue to improve. But we're definitely going along that continuum. It didn't happen overnight anywhere in the world. The quality of the politics, the quality of the discussion, did not improve overnight. It took time, and we have to bank some of those marginal gains. Let me ask you. Okay, well, it's, you are the one asking the question, yeah, so I'm asking the question. Truth. But think about 99 and 2019, yeah. and where Nigeria is in its politics. We've advanced in the quality of the discussions we're having. Politics in 1999, nobody even knew who those guys were. They had no antecedents. I mean, I voted AD in 99, not because of anything, but just they said, oh, you know, this is the party of our people. This is our lowest party. All you needed to win an election in Yoruba land in 99 was do the peace sign and wear the Awolowo cap. Some people, like uh, Ashiwaju, didn't even need the cap. You just needed the peace sign. <laughs> <laughs> you know, once you were endorsed by Afeni Ferry, you were locked in to win an election. Now, nobody really bothers about that, you know. Whether they support you or they oppose you, people are a lot more independent in their views, you know. Um, back then, if you were Ohaneze Indigo, you win in the Southeast. I don't think that that holds very much now. Otherwise, Abga would be the dominant party in the Southeast. But to pick up on that point... Wouldn't you say that was better in some sense? Look, if I'm voting in the Southwest, mm-hmm. for example, and um, whether true or false, if someone is running on an Aula platform, I know the antecedents of that. But the truth, I, I know the history. No, but the of truth that. of that is that people only use that as some people use that as a vehicle to get power. It's not because they believed in the philosophy of the man or the philosophy of the UPN or the action group. Tell them to tell you the to tell you any part of the AG manifesto that they know. They don't. But they realize that people took things at face value and if you wore a cap and you did a peace sign, you win an election. But, I mean, but is that any less preferable than 2,000 Naira at the polling unit that we have now? I'll tell you one thing. Eh? I'm, a, I'm a big fan of marginal gains, as you might have suspected. They were t- Look, till today, the election that was superintended by Maurice Iwu Show me anywhere where you can find a breakdown of results, whether real or imagined, per polling units for the presidential election. There's a summary. Take it or leave it. There's no breakdown of that election anywhere. How, did, how did he get away with that, by the way? I mean, but the point is, Obasanjo <laughs> made him get away with it. Let's be clear. Look, so let me tell you one thing. Eh? I'm not saying the elections are perfect. The fact that people are paying for you to vote for them means that they believe your vote counts. Because if you don't pay, let's be honest about this, right? If I'm paying you 2000 naira for you to vote for me, what does that tell you? It tells you that they need you to 
act to vote to win the election. They actually need that act from you. In 2007, in 2011, by 2011, things have started changing. But as of 2007, you did not need that physical act of voting to happen. What I'm saying is that things have shifted. You might, dis- you know, people can disagree, you know, it's an opinion, but I'm saying things have shifted. They might not be perfect or close to perfect, but things have shifted, you know, and our goal is to ensure that things continue to shift. Maybe in 2023, we will create a situation where you can't even tell how I voted to remove the incentive of paying me to vote. INEC did some things like saying we don't want to see mobile phones, etc. You know, we are going to keep improving the process. I think that we have moved, right? Um, people are now saying, oh, we want to... Some people will say, oh, PDP wanted to uh, infiltrate and hack our servers. Somebody will say, oh, the result on the server was different from the one you published. I mean, we're now having a conversation where, we are, where we've moved the realm of the debate to cyber... Cyber... Cyber security cyber and cyber attacks. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago, the conversation was the smart twenty ballot boxes, <laughs> right? But it has this national ballot But it's boxes. reduced. Yeah, yeah. Look, let me tell you. If you think about twenty years ago, people were saying, "Look, we did not even vote here." True. You know, we are reducing those issues. Social media is helping us democratize those issues. If you look at the twenty nineteen election, whether real or uh, manufactured, people were reporting issues in their polling units on the go. You understand? You could tell, even just looking at some of the results, Papiu, who was going to win an election where? Ekiti elections, for example. You know, I was I was away. I was not even in the country on the day of the election. And when I saw the results from my polling units, right, I knew immediately that Dr. Faimi had won the election. Because we were on course to win Ikole local government, which is my local government, which is a place that historically we've always struggled with as a party. So you, you can tell that, look, elections are starting to count, matter a lot more. You know, it's not perfect. It's not anywhere close to perfect. But let's not say that there have not been any gains. And I have my views on one of the biggest reasons why we've seen those gains. is the absence of General Obasanjo, or President Obasanjo, apologies, uh, from mainstream politics in Nigeria. Why? Explain that. Because I think that the winner takes all mentality that he personally projected, you know, transcended beyond him and then influenced, broadly speaking, political parties in the country. I think that Presidents Yadwa, Jonathan, and Buhari have been less um, involved in ensuring that their parties remain dominant across the country. You know, President Yadwa, for example, he had the, I came in through a tainted process. Yeah. And I'm, I'm embarrassed by it. And the way I'll resolve it is by taking my hands off and saying, you know, let the will of the people be done. President Buhari, for example, has shown a willingness to work across parties with governors. If you talk to the governors of Niger- in Nigeria today, all of them are united in the fact that regardless of our political parties, this president is happy to work with us. There was a time in this country where ecological fund and all these special projects were only reserved for governors of the party in power. Where if you had a loan request and you were an opposition party and wanted to borrow from the World Bank, the government would not approve it. Those times existed in the country. 
today, in fact, some of the opposition governors have been accused of underhand support for the president. Because think about a lot of the things happening across states. Many of the projects are happening in states that are not APC states. And you think that is really a byproduct of President Buhari's leadership? I think it is all. The, look, the Nigerian presidency... Aren't was, you partisan? Yeah, okay. No, I'm, not, okay. I'm, I'm always partisan. Okay. Let's put that caveat there. I'm an APC member. Okay. In my, if you choose, take it with a pinch of salt. That's, <laughs> right. That's your business. Okay. My own is to share my views. Okay. Right? I'm not asking anybody to accept the views. Mm. But here's what I'm saying. Under the president, you cannot really say that the governors, as opposition governors, are suffering. Look, under President Obasanjo, people were saying we want to... I don't want to use those words, but they were almost military dictatorial words of we want to capture the Southwest. Yeah. You know? There, there was that sentiment. Do you understand? I mean, APC has not said, oh, we have to capture the Southeast. We don't even have a... Look, we went from having one Southeast governor to having none. We lost the most states. You understand? Okay. It doesn't mean... I mean... But when you have the president mm-hmm. say things like... Um, parts of the country that give me 95% cannot expect the same thing as the people that give me 5%. How do you, where do you put that? Where does that fit? You know, I think one of the things as well is I think that our political leaders need a lot more media training, right? Because honestly, I feel that sometimes, you know, these conversations are, you see, politics comes, there's some reward that comes with political support, Right. Now, if you are going to, for example, appoint people into roles, right? Those roles are going to, those appointments are almost like reward for support. Some of those appointments. So you are going to find that they are, they are going to be skilled in some degree to places where you feel that you got more support. Because there's a sense of giving back, right? But it doesn't mean that projects will now be dependent on that. I mean, I tell people that, look, for what it's worth, Things like the cleanup, for example, the Ogoni cleanup for me, is a fundamental environmental project. We had a South-South president that did not start that work. Let's be honest with ourselves. Yeah. Today, that project is going on. I follow the updates on social media, and I'm happy to see that that project is moving. For me, that's a fundamental project that this country needs because the South-South needs an environmental cleanup to even give it a chance of whether it's aquaculture, crop production, you know, there's an agrarian community there that has suffered because of the degradation of the environment. For me, if that's the one thing you bequeath that zone, it's a fundamental thing to do. The the whole work being done with probing NDDC is not for the North. NDDC is a Niger Delta corporation. But those people have taken money and they've not delivered any projects. When people say, oh, there's a, there's a tribal ethnic sentiment, the Nigerian elite has always been united about money. Let's not deceive ourselves. When, why haven't the governors of that region, if they are so insistent on... It's when you're in opposition that you can say, oh, we are being marginalized. What happens when you're in government? What happens? I tell people, I don't care honestly where someone comes from. So when people say, oh, this guy is more than this guy, I don't care. I really do not care. Can you do the work? Are you qualified? That for me is a bigger thing. Femi Gwajabi Amila is the speaker of the House of Representatives. So how is he going to improve the lives of Sonny Sule? 
the life of the man in Surulere is not dependent on that. You know, that for me is a fundamental issue. I don't care where the person is from. You know, the point is, is the person qualified? Because I definitely, I'm a big, look, I understand what federal character has done and the importance of federal character in terms of, you know, just the cohesiveness of the country, right? And at the time, the country was a lot more fractured, right? So I, I recognize that it's one of the things I would say has actually helped Nigeria remain, you know, seemingly united. Um, but do I care where the president of the country comes from? I don't. I don't. I honestly do not care. The important thing for me is that does it increase my chances of being successful? Does it increase the chances of my children being successful? A rising tide leaves all boats. Are we as a country improving, regardless of where the president is from? So I always take these conversations as a distraction. You know, zoning, no zoning. We want a southwest president. We want a southeast president. I don't care where the president of the country comes from. Does anyone care where Donald Trump was born? Does anyone care where Boris Johnson was born? You know, it doesn't really matter to me. The reason we are having this, we are majoring in the minors, is because we are still an impoverished society. And probably diverse. Diversity, look, let me tell you what. When the Nigerian elite sit, do they care where they are from? No. Nobody cares. But, but that division could be a useful political tool because diversity is our, I don't know, maybe geographic reality. You see, my brother, let me tell you one thing. I feel that everybody realizes that Nigeria is stronger together. We deceive ourselves. We can say, oh, we want to succeed. We want to do this. We want to do that. I almost feel like all that is gamesmanship. Right? The reality is that we are stronger together. Our collective ability to influence the region is based on the size of the country country and the ability to manage the federation. There is no part of this country, even the oil-rich part of of the country, cannot survive in isolation. We have seen it in South Sudan and Sudan. And that diversity happens everywhere. I mean... In Nikiti State, somebody will tell you that an, uh, an Ishoman, who is governor today, cannot be succeeded by an Oyeman because they are from the same Ekiti, not senatorial zone. This is Ekiti, one of the more homogeneous states in the country, if not the most homogeneous state in the country, where every part of the place is an Ekiti. You understand? Yeah. There's nothing that separates the guy from Isho and the guy from Ikoli until there's election. Then they'll tell you that, ah, no, now. The senator has come from Ifaki three times. Now it has to come from Ikole or Oye. That's when a man from Ikele will say, Ikele has never produced a governor. <laughs> it's our turn. <laughs> so when we talk about these things, eh, these things are just tools to manage political interests. I think that we should be more concerned about the quality of people in office, not necessarily where they are from. And I think that these things, you know, some people will say, oh, the president has appointed this person. He can't replace a, a, a southerner with a northerner. I'm like, look, guys, these are irrelevant issues. I'd rather have a conversation of, is this guy qualified? If he's not, that's a different issue. But if he's qualified, who cares where he's from? Do you care where your account officer is from? When a surgeon is going to operate on you, are you going to say, oh, I only allow your surgeons to operate on me? <laughs> no, let's be honest. 
if the guy is the best brain surgeon in the country and somebody has a surgery tomorrow, are you going to say, oh, ah, another canary surgeon? The last time my dentist was from uh, was from Bono. Why is the gastro uh, surgeon from uh, Bono State too? Is the only Bono people that can be surgeons? Do you care? You don't care. You don't make those decisions because when you have skin in the game, real skin in the game, you don't care where the person is from. So these conversations for me, they are distractions. You know, um, I generally feel that we should just be focused a lot more on competence, and we lose that narrative. Now let, let's return to President of Asanjo. Yes, um, one of my favorite topics. Yeah, <laughs> some will say that um, he's our best president on the back of the economic reforms of the 2003 to 2007 era. Mm -hmm. And part of his legacy was that oh, he actually appointed some competent hands. Mm -hmm. A lot of people that we still throw their names around today mm -hmm. came up during that era. Mm -hmm. Isn't that something at least praiseworthy in your view? That's one. Okay. Secondly, now, and quite critically, mm -hmm. Obasanjo so supported your party in 2015. We didn't request for it. He Shouldn't that count for something? The second question <laughs> is easy to answer. I mean, for a, for for someone that is notorious for being rigid to abandon PDP, I can answer the second question a lot more easily than please. Question. Please do, President Obasanjo. In my opinion, is self-obsessed. In 2015, he supported the APC not because of any love for the APC or the key actors of the party, but because he wanted to punish his own party for what he saw as an affront and a lack of respect for him. Um, he was very critical of the incumbent president, Jonathan, because he felt he was frozen out of government. And even in his own state, you know, he was frozen out of choosing candidates in that place. And so it was more a an act of self-inflicted self, uh, opposition. And, you know, to be honest, I don't think his support amounted to much, which is why in 2019, despite the, the volume of letters that he wrote, I mean, the APC still won the election fairly easily. So I think that has sort of put to bed the myth that you need President Obasanjo to support you to win an election in Nigeria. To be honest, I don't think that his political might counts for much anymore. This is just a man who's constantly seeking relevance. Um, so I don't really I don't really rate his political his political relevance in the country. Honestly, that's me. I might be wrong, but that's me. On the first point, I think that look, I'll be very honest, he's a very his second term in office was very good for the country. Um, it could have been a lot better. But having said that it was still there were lots of good things to talk about. Um, I think that the jury is out on being the best president ever. You also must realize that he's the only president who served two full terms. And I don't think his first term was stellar, right? I know. His first term was, in my opinion, below par. Yeah. So I think that, for example, President Diadoa was in office for too short a period. President Jonathan had one term, you could say full term. Um, president Buhari is going to be the best comparison, right? Yeah. By 2023. And I think that we should wait till 2023 before passing that judgment. Um, there are some things that the APC government, if we deliver, will be transformative to this country. Um, the conversations with Siemens and, the, and the, the work being done to improve 
the generation, transmission, and parts of the distribution infrastructure in Nigeria, if done by 2023, will be transformative. And it will show now significant gains, the kind of gains we haven't seen in this country in the last 20 years. I mean, if we're able to fix large parts of the transport infrastructure, you know, the Lagos to Ibadan line is already done, um, fully operational now, probably in March. Uh, and if we then extend that from Ibadan to Kano, you know, I mean, I don't need to tell you what the impact of that on the country will be. I mean, if people say, oh, why are you taking, why are you patting yourselves on the back for fixing Lagos Ibadan Expressway? And I ask them, so why wasn't it done for the last 30 years? So sometimes you say, oh, these are mundane things. But you also have to ask yourself, why haven't these things been done? You know, if we get some of the roads working, Lagos Ibadan, Biniore, Second Niger Bridge, you know, these are transformative projects for, I travel through Lagos to Ado. If that Lagos Ibadan road is completed, Lagos to Ibadan is suddenly a 45 minutes trip. It means that I have a good chance of getting to Ado in three hours. Now, imagine what that does for investors. Imagine what that does for the transport of goods and services. You know, it's transformative stuff for the economy. Um, if we can improve, you know, power supply from what is today between 2,005 to 3,500 megawatts to even 5,000 megawatts, right? You know, we're we are talking almost from 3.5 to 5K is, you know, almost a 50% increase, right? It's transformative for the economy. You know, if we can fix some of the long-standing issues with our ports, you know, these are transformative things for the economy. So I think that there's there's a sense that the jury is still out on on President Buhari's government. And I would say that when we give those two people eight years um, each, you know, we can then start to say, where do we think we've seen more transformation? But in terms of even the quality of people, I mean, I would agree that, yes, you know, these were fresh faces in government at the time. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, that government also had T.Y. Danjuma in it. If you remember in his first time, had Cornelius Adebayo. You know, had, had, had a, lot, a lot of old people in it. Barnabas I mean, they were old people, Tony and Nenny. So we mustn't make it look like Obasanjo was this guy who was like the patron saint of youth and young people in government. You know, today... For an OP exequacy or a national error fight, there's a Yewande Sadiku at NIPC. I mean, I'm biased to someone like Yewande Sadiku because you're my colleague, but this is as good as you get running the NIPC. You know, Jumoke Odu Wale, the work she's doing as a special advisor to the president on doing business, fantastic work. You know, my current boss, Dr. Fahemi, was Minister of Mines, right? I don't think, I mean, that, yes, you know, I'm biased, but I think that. He's one of the final thinkers you'll find in government, you know. And there are many of those people. For what you say about Babatunde Fashola, I think that he has more pluses than minuses, a lot more pluses than minuses. And those are the kinds of people that I want to see in government. You won't ever get a government filled with those kinds of people because there's a balance that you need to find. But I definitely think that, you know, there's enough talent in this government, both at ministerial and parastatal level. Uche Oji at NSI is doing fantastic work in that place. You know, I mean, I don't think you'll find better public servants. And sometimes even keeping the people you meet in government is as important or more important than appointing new people. You know, having Yemi Kale serve two terms at MBS has done significantly great work for the Bureau that I think keeping Dr. Kale there 
is for me a much bigger thing than appointing a superstar somewhere else. I watch football a lot, right? And Jose Mourinho will say to you sometimes, keeping your players is more important than signing new players, you know? And recognizing that continuity, etc. Look, these are some of the mature decisions that I think that the current president doesn't get credit for because they're the right decisions to make anyway. But previous governments, I mean, a President Obasanjo will remove you for opposing a small view. Because your country are aware that, yes, he brought her into government, but people often forget how he removed that from office. Did he? I thought she resigned. Oh, really? You call that a resignation? <laughs> you call that a resignation where someone is outside the country and she hears about her movement to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs? I mean, you might as well say, hey, get out of my government. You forget that in his first time, President Obasanjo allegedly had unsigned resignation letters of his ministers. I mean, people forget this thing. You know, the man ran the government like uh, like his personal enterprise. Oh, okay. He had three or four. He had three. How many How many Senate presidents? NWRM? Um, uh, Chuba Okadibo. Okadibo, yeah. Kenina, man. Ka- Kenina. Chuba Okadibo, they was tear gassed. People forget this. This is not... We're not talking about small-time politicians. This is Chuba Okadibo, the OE of OE. Yeah, but you people also persecuted Saraki now. What persecution? <laughs> the man, Saraki, left his party. He left his party. President Buhari did not oppose him. He served his full term. What was persecution? He served the full term as Senate president. And now the Kwara State government is demolishing his father's house. Um, you see, <laughs> this is a subnational issue. I'm not going to... And that is an issue that is a land use act issue. The real disease there is the land use act. Right? This that is the same thing. government. Yes, right. which is an Obasanjo creation. Yeah. Who, who, who foisted the land use act on Nigeria? From 79 From to 79. 99. Yeah, yeah. This is an Obasanjo creation. <laughs> and he had an opportunity to unwind his disaster. He refused. So look, Senator Bukala Saraki, who I personally like, and I always say that, I like and respect him as an individual, but the point is, he went against his party. The party did not... They, he became Senate president. They asked the president, said, I have no horse in the race. Senator Saraki served a full term as Senate president. The only, the only time that we saw security forces play games around the National Assembly, the DSS DG was fired. Okay. You understand? But, but, but VP Oshibaji was later on their mind. No, no, no. You see, those are now, no, no, no. You see, those are now, those are now, those are now, those are now rumors, right? I'm not going to go into this fair. I don't have any fair enough. I have no yeah. credible source to, to. I don't either. Exactly. For the record. So these are all Twitter related. <laughs> yeah. This Twitter banter. Yeah. But but let's be clear that I always say that Senator Saraki served his full term. He lost at the ballot box. True. He was defeated. True. Not only was he defeated, his entire... Look, I always tell people that you have to respect the political power of the APC. Every senator that defected from the party is no longer in the Senate. It is a message. We don't have to do anything to you when you are there. Dino Melaye was running his mouth like a teenager. Today, he's no longer a senator. That's how to punish people who, who do not toe the party line. Look, party discipline is important. I think he's into acting now. Or music, that's what I might say. But, but look, recognize that all the senators who defected are no longer in the Senate. It is a strong message that you will be disciplined at the ballot box. We are not going to be uprooting uh, Senate, uh, Senate presidents. 
No, there's we we respect the office. Saraki, Senator Saraki, uh, Speaker Dogara, they were always invited to the to state events. They will sit with the presidents. They will smile and they will eat together, even though they held different views. This is how you disagree. Okay, okay, okay. I hear General you. General President Obasanjo. I hear you. President Obasanjo. Yeah. He won't even sit with Okadibo. I hear you. He was such a petty president. But okay, talking about. President Buhari and appointments. Yes. How in God's name will anybody explain Godwin immediately? I mean, you are, you know, how in God's name, you know, will you explain Godwin immediately? That's an now, interesting question. Yeah, yeah. So, but, so, yeah, wait, there, so there's a reason. There's a so reason what, why. What's your biggest? There's a reason for that snap. Yes. There's yes. a reason for that snap. And I want to understand why. Now you said in the early parts of this conversation, you yes. said the primary function yes. of the central bank yes. should be price control. In Nigeria today, should in be Nigeria, price stability, not control. Price stability, sorry. Yes. Um, now, there are good reasons for that. Inflation is running amok, yep. destroying wealth in real time. Yep. But here we have a central bank president that clearly... Governor. governor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sorry. That clearly sees his mandate as a lot more expansive He's mm-hmm. basically doing industrial policy, mm-hmm. sometimes without um, proper direction mm-hmm. or strategy. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much how much that that's my biggest grouse. Really. Look, I mean, I think I have my partisanship does not does not prevent me from saying that I do not agree with a lot of what the central bank is doing. Um, and in my opinion, I think that the central bank. I've said this again, and I'll say it again. Price stability should be of today should be a fundamental um, objective. And I think that, in fact, but Chukuma Soludo, Professor Soludo, who was the only one bold enough to say I was going to set an inflation target, um, I think that that should be where CBN should should be headed. I don't think that the CBN is a development bank. I think that the CBN is taking over the job of people like BOI, BOA, et cetera. And I think that even the multiplicity of development finance interventions affects the impact of those interventions. Um, I think that the central bank should also not be focused on fiscal policy. It's not their job to determine what goods should be FX uh, allowable and otherwise. I think that those distortions create opportunities for arbitrage and also take away capital from productive parts of the economy to start chasing higher returns, um, arbitrage returns. I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, the era where we had multiple exchange rates and a wide variance between those rates meant that capital was looking for to exploit those arbitrage yeah. opportunities. Yeah. And that takes away capital from the productive sectors of the economy. Yeah. I think that some of the um, policies are also sort of like on the go. Um, and I don't think that we have enough discourse around the impact of those policies. Um, and, you know, just the impact assessment isn't done. You know, and we now quote numbers um, from our biased positions. So I think that the real issue is that the rigor that you require from a central bank is not currently at the level that I hope it will get to. Uh, but again, you know, when you ask why appointing, I mean, it was a, it was a central bank governor that was met in office. Yeah. You know, um, and that was retained. And it's at the prerogative of the president to retain this central bank governor. True. Uh, but, also, but, you know, but, some of the things about this conversation is that if tomorrow, let's let's say, uh, hypothetically, right, let's say the governor of the central bank was replaced, 
right? Somebody will come and say, oh, you've removed the sadhana again, you've brought in another now. I'm just telling you that the, the difficulty of making decisions, right? You know, what, whatever decisions you make, you will get criticized one way or the other. And again, you know, the truth is, hopefully, I hope that, you know, something like the EAC um, will help sort of steer moderate, or uh, moderate, you know, some of the actions of the CBN um, and that we'll now have an ideas-based um, or, or at least, you know, a knowledge-driven decision-making process. So I will not say that all hope is lost because for me, some of these intentions, however noble, must be done the right way, you know. Um, look, I'll be the first to tell you that if the CBN did not, for example, try to minimize milk importation into the country, a dairy farm in Ikun might not be revived today, right? Sometimes these decisions start as suboptimal decisions. We've got to make the best of, of those decisions. And, you know, over the medium to long term, we could actually make these things work for the country. Uh, for me, the biggest issue now is how do we improve productivity, right? So... Why is rice cheaper from China than locally? One, because our yields are very low. Two, because our logistics is suboptimal. If we quadruple the yield, right, if we improve logistics, it will be cheaper to eat Nigerian rice than Chinese rice. So there won't be a conversation of rice from Thailand or rice from Nigeria, right? And, and if we see that it's still not competitive because those guys are subsidizing their farmers, we will subsidize our own farmers too. Right? If we subsidize our farmers, I would rather the subsidy goes into production right, than consumption. Right? So if we were to say, let's take out fuel subsidies today, and let's move those subsidies into production subsidies that allow our products, our agri-products, be, be competitive, then I'm happy. Right? Those are the conversations I think we need to have. We're not having those conversations. You understand? Let's ask ourselves, why is the yield on Nigerian rice low? Irrigation, right? Because you have one planting season in most cases. Your yield is low because your seedlings are poorer. You don't apply the right fertilizer because you don't know what soil types they are, right? Even the planting methods and the harvesting methods. Then storage, how do we minimize, you know, um, farm gate losses, etc. Those are the issues that we need to resolve. There's a 100,000 metric ton silo in Adoikiti wasting away. We are now asking agri producers, rice producers, come and mill in Ekiti. People don't know Ekiti State is the highest producing rice corridor in southwest Nigeria. More than Ogun and their father, apologies to my friends from Ogun State. But the milling capacity is not there. Now we are bringing the milling capacity there. That's private milling capacity. The silo is, is run commercially. You, the miller, you, the silo owner, oh yeah, come and talk. That's how to optimize these things, right? And then all of a sudden, you see that we're quadrupling the yield per hectare. Suddenly, the rice becomes cheaper. You know, it becomes more competitive. That's the conversation we need to have. How do we optimize productivity? Transportation is a productivity conversation. If we minimize the time we spend on the road, it's also improving the productivity of our human capital. Those are the productivity gains that we should be looking for. Electricity, transport, agriculture. In my opinion, those are the three critical areas we should be focused on. But, but to your point on 
appointments. I think again, you see, we have to recognize that many of the appointments are it's the prerogative of the president. Yeah, well, know? There, there will be hits and misses. I, as I, with I, all, as with all appointments, there will I, be hits and misses. I, I get that. I, I like how we've segued into economics again. So here, here is something we'll get to audience questions very shortly. But here is something I want to uh, get your view on. In Nigeria, for a lot of these reforms to happen, what do you think is the biggest barrier? I know someone like he favors structural forces. He, he, he tries to take the long view. He talks about culture, slavery, and its influence on the current political economy. Whereas some people say, oh, we are too exposed to macroeconomic distortions like oil prices or uh, uh, the Fed exchange rates and mm-hmm. things like that. Which do you think is the biggest barrier to reform? I think mm-hmm. that I think they're equally important. And I won't place one over the other. I think that there are cultural hang-ups that we have um, that have that are now hard coded into how we think and how we respond to issues. For example, there's a serious power index, power distance index issue in Nigeria. And we find that because of that, people are hesitant to challenge authority, right? Which then weakens the quality of information available to decision makers, right? So sometimes I say to people that if I oppose the views of my principal or a higher authority, I do it because I want them to succeed, because I want them to be exposed to the universal nature of the arguments available before they make a decision. You know, people don't see it that way in many instances. They see it as being confrontational, and therefore people tend to keep quiet. So decision making is not tested, right? You know, decision decision making does not have the rigor. You know, it's not put to the rigorous examination that it should be put through. Um, so that's where sometimes culture hampers decision making. But the truth is that we are quite we are quite exposed to external threats and shocks. And anyone who doesn't accept that as a preeminent problem is also not taking an immediate view of the situation, right? The truth is, as long as our foreign exchange buffers are tied to oil price fluctuations, we're always going to be, you know, we're always going to be exposed to shocks in there. Government revenue is still very oil-based. Um, subnational revenues are still very federal-based. Apart from maybe Lagos, um, Rivers, now to some degree Kaduna, and Kano, many of the states are still very dependent on federal allocations. If you ask me where's the fiscal target we must look at in a state like Ekiti, I would always say that at the very least, our internally generated revenue should cover our recurrent expenditure. It should start by covering our wage bill and subsequently recurrent expenditure because you can argue that if that wage bill is not delivering the relevant IGR, then you are not productive. End of conversation, right? So we should first start with how does our IGR cover the wage bill, then recurrent expenditure, and then we can get to a point where it starts to support some of the capital expenditure. You know, So that's how you want to progressively grow as, as a state. Um, so I think that, look, we have to treat both equally. You know, um, I don't think one is more important than the other. And part of the challenges of being in the arena is how do you balance both? You know, no disrespect to my friends, on the outside, I say to them sometimes, you have the benefit of not being in government. So you can step back 
and take a broad view of these issues. But for those of us in government, in politics, we've got to balance those things with also how do we ensure? Because look, if you don't hold, if you don't retain power, then your reforms are not mature enough, right, to survive your ideology being out of office. So you have to balance things that ensure that you can hand over to people of similar ideology, right? And we saw it in Ekiti, where after Dr. Fahemi's first term, you could argue that the um, the government that followed it not only stalled reforms, in many instances reversed some of those things even to a worse of position than it was before we came into office, or before he came into office the first time. You know, so you, you must recognize that, you know, the volatility of political office has a strong, strong, strong say on how uh, sustainable reforms are. Okay. So our audience want to know, are you going to run for political office at some point? I mean, that's a very interesting question. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, honestly... Governor, House of Rep, Senate... Honestly, I mean, I'm not... I, I don't plan, like, 10 years in advance. If you had asked me five years ago, will you be working in a kitty state now? My answer might have been no. You know, if you had asked me pre-2015, would you be working in government now? The answer might have been no. So, I, I mean, I always say, like, you know, we're not even guaranteed tomorrow, you know, not to start making five, ten-year plans of running for office. I mean, obviously, if the opportunity presents itself, you know, it's something to consider. But I always say that I don't think I'll make a good politician, you know. I, I like being in the political process. I, I'm not sure that I want to be the man who goes to seek, seek for votes, you know. Some of the things you have to to do, um, and I don't mean even things that are unspoken, you know, some of the compromises that you have to make. Sometimes I think I'm too rigid in my approach to be able to make those compromises, you know. So, so sometimes, you know, it's better to to ride on the back of people who are able to balance those things a lot better. I see politicians at play, and I, I marvel at sometimes how they're able to, you know, coalesce around different opinions and views, etc. And it's not something that I'm very good at doing. So for now, I'm happy doing what I'm doing. By 2022, when hopefully government is done, hopefully we'll have delivered some significant gains to equity people, and then I can recalibrate and see what next. I mean, I always say to people that my ideal job would be to own a football club. If you ask me what do I want to do, is to own and run a football club. Um, Probably Manchester United. I mean, I know I'll do a much better job than the guys running it today. Um, so that would be my that would be my preferred uh, career change. Yeah. Okay. So you worked uh, in Lagos under the previous administration, and the consensus, at least from what I've heard, was that that period was uh, successful. And all evidence points to the fact that you actually replicate some of that success in Ekiti as well. So give us the accurate body production function. What's your secret? Problem. You know, I listen to Tyler's podcast a lot. Yeah. Right? So um, <laughs> honestly, one is, so I drink lots of coffee. Okay. Um, I've only had one cup today because we've been talking for so long, but I, I drink lots of coffee. This is probably like my third cup today. Um, so coffee keeps me very active, helps me work a lot better. Um, I tend to do my best work in the mornings, right? Um, so I'd like to say I'm a morning person. I get up fairly early. I like to exercise a lot. I think exercising makes you comfortable with discomfort. 
and it helps you push the boundaries apart from what you hear it does for your mental and physical alertness so because i tend to be on the road a lot you know um so but the one big hack if you ask my wife is that i i'm a very deep sleeper so i i have the the gift of being able to i sleep very deeply right so you can have an orchestra performing right there, right the there and I'm, I'm done you know when i sleep i sleep so i think that just being a, a deep sleeper improves my quality of sleep so i can get away with four five hours of very high quality sleep i think for me those are the critical like lifestyle things but other than that i try to read all sorts of things i try to maximize my time and so after spending less time on social media because it's become a bit of a distraction and it's also become very intolerant so i don't spend as much time engaging as i as, as i have loved but i have now started devoting that time to listening to more podcasts to reading a lot more books and to actually doing what the people of ekiti state pay me to do mm. which is to bring investment into the state so now your friends that are on the outside how do you cope have you become a bit of an odd lot you know sitting right <clears throat> next to someone like fee for example who even though he's not going to admit it has mm-hmm. become an activist mm-hmm. and someone like you you know who work in government how mm-hmm. do you how do you guys resolve your differences so let me tell you a little secret right i have this very interesting whatsapp group there's maybe 15 of us in it okay. right i spend a lot of time on that group and in that group you have me you have to log who's also not a public servant. You have Fei, whose f- favorite pastime is to tell you everything wrong with public service. You have Yemi Adamolekun, who, in my opinion, has activism running all through her blood. You have Gwenga Sheson, who's also a very, you know, critical voice of government. Um, and I'll, I'll keep the, the others, I'll keep their... Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. their identity secret but you can imagine the kind of conversations we have and i think the, you see the point is at the end of the day right these are not personal conversations because i mean if fei tolu and i have the opportunity every time we'll catch up and eat and chat and talk about other things as well as government so we recognize that at the end of the day we all want the the common good and our hearts are in the you know are in the right place so we are able to disagree on issues you know um sometimes yes i would admit that once or twice some of us have had to leave the whatsapp group uh, i can i can report myself you know <laughs> even though we're immediately pulled back by people like yemi but it's important that we we disagree and i always say like i'm thankful for for my family and my friends um because they keep me honest my father always said to me remember the son of whom thou art growing up and i always feel like I have my my name to protect, you know. And I always say to people that look, I'm lucky to have a father who didn't place a lot of value on material gains. So that is always in it's somewhere in my head, you know. I have a family who's not very keen on anything material, you know. If I bring some unexplained wealth into my house today, my wife is going to be the first person to say where did you get that from? And she always says it to me that you know, if you go to prison for anything, I'm not going to bring any food to EFCC. Um, and so it's a constant reminder. It's good to have people close to you remind you that, look, you have a name and a reputation to protect. The other thing is, I, I, look, my friends keep me honest, you know, and I like the fact that they are able to call out things they think we're not doing properly and be very critical of the government that some of us serve. 
because it's also important not to stay tunnel vision. And sometimes, you know, when you're in the arena, you sometimes get defensive, you know. And I always say, like, everybody needs a WhatsApp group, you know, like that. <laughs> because it allows me to sometimes even vent some of the frustrations that I maybe cannot vent publicly. And it also gives me an opportunity to get feedback from people I know deep down what our best interest at heart. You know, they are not pro or anti any government, you know. They are pro-development, they are pro-human rights. So it's not it's not a personal issue. Yeah. It is almost a situation of, well, if your government did this, we won't criticize the government. You know, and, I, and I'm thankful for such people, you know. Um, so we disagree on issues, but I don't think it affects the quality of our of our relationship. So I'm happy for Faye to continue doing what he's doing. When I when I create a bit more time, then I'll go back into active blogging, you know, <laughs> to share to share the other side of the of the, of the story. And I've told him that, you know, at some point, you know, you have to come and uh, join us in the arena, mm. you know, and come and toil with, with sweat and blood. You know, <laughs> I recognize that sometimes, you know, the solutions are not as obvious when you have to make those 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 decisions and I'll, and I'll close that com- that conversation up with one comment people say why can't you take out subsidy tomorrow and I say look there's a clear and present danger that if not well managed a subsidy removal can lead to a deep sense of unrest right in the country you know and let's be honest about it people always forget that when they talk about um, China and the massacre of 89 they forget that these were deep-rooted issues that, that came from an economic issue. When China decided that they wanted to liberalize prices, right, and start to remove price control, start to liberalize state-owned entities, it brought a period of painful adjustments, and people paid the price for it, you know. And so sometimes we can't take these things wholesale. We must say, look, these guys got it right eventually, but at this point they missed it all. They found their way later, but they missed it at this point. The benefit of learning from that example is saying, how do we do it differently? Knowing that we want these outcomes, but we don't want to take this medicine. You know, And that is, for me, why I still always say that we need to have various discussions. But anyone who says, oh, everything, the solution to everything is free markets, I always tell them, no, that's a, that person is a dangerous person. <laughs> don't tell my friends I said this. Okay. Okay. So, yeah public service 101 now for someone who, who, who is passionate about public service and wants to follow in your footsteps so to speak what what are the advices you would give for me the most important thing is stay true to who you are you have to know yourself and i think that you know it sounds cliche but you have to you must know who you are because if you don't know yourself you will find out if you go into public service. You know, you must know what you stand for. You must know what you cannot tolerate because anything that you don't know will be found out. I always tell people that everyone has a price and the only time for some people they ever know what their price is is when that thing is actually put in front of them because sometimes it's not monetary. Sometimes it's even your development mindset. It's your urge to do good because there's a price to doing good. So, you know, I always say that, look, know who you are, you know, be clear about what you would accept and what you won't accept, because that's the foundation of knowing when to walk away from. The second thing I'll say is that be comfortable before you go into public service. You know, build a career, either a private sector career, 
um, or a business career where you can go into service knowing that I'm doing this for the people. It's very, very important, you know. I mean, I always think about people like my principal, you know. He's built a career in academia, in civil society. He will always say to you that if tomorrow I'm not governor of Ekiti, I can do many things, you know. He's comfortable going to sit, to sit down in Ife or Oxford or LSE or wherever to take a position as a professor, you know. Look at the man in Oyo State, for example. You can always go back to his private business. If you look at someone like Nasser El Rufai, he ran a very good business before he became a public servant, you know. Um, and to, till tomorrow, he can always go back to private practice. So there's a need to build your career because if you don't have a career and you don't have a second address, it increases the number of compromises you have to make. I used to say to people that, look, guys, you know, if this thing doesn't work out, I have a career in finance I can go back to. So it's not by force to do this job. Um, and that's very important. But I, I think the most important thing is always have people who are smarter than you and people that you trust will always be true to you. Because sometimes the hubris that surrounds public service is significant and power, you know. And even though people can't tell the difference between proximity to power and actual power, they will tell you all sorts of things like you, you can do no wrong, right? So having people who can honestly speak to you and say, look, I think you or the government you serve have gone too far is very important. So those three things are, for me, the key ingredients of anyone who's taking a job in public service. Without all of those three, you'll struggle to succeed. Mm. Interesting. Last question. What's the one idea in line with the entire philosophy of the show? What's the one idea you like to see spread all around the country? Well, that's, for me, very easy. Um, education, you know. Um, early stage education is critical. So if there's one thing I would say, it is education from primary to junior secondary level. If you ask me where's the sweet spot, right, primary to junior secondary junior secondary education. And I think that that's where Nigeria has missed its potential um, or lost its way a bit in the last, in the last, I'd say, 20 to 30 years, is that the quality of basic education, early stage education has worsened to the point where kids are barely literate. So as literacy worsens, you know, um, qualitative reasoning, critical reasoning starts to worsen. You know, I sometimes say that, look, my, my son at six is a lot more intelligent than I am, how I was at six. You know, I marvel at the things that these boys can do. My three-year-old now, you give him a mobile phone, he, the fastest thing he does is how to skip ads or to de decline for... Look, if I call my wife, I can tell if her phone is with my son with the speed at which the call is declined, right? Because the kids know, intuitively, they know these things, you know? And you start to ask yourself, what about the thousands and millions of kids who don't have access to mobile telephones at three, who don't have access to these critical reasoning tools, you know, who don't have access to learning languages early, you know, to things like even being able to swim. I mean, it limits the kind of jobs you can take, you know? So I ask myself, what are we doing to help these kids? One thing I say to people is that I recognize my privilege, right? And I don't hide it. So I will not come to you and say I grew up eating corn. I won't lie. I grew up in a middle-class family with a father who was a professor, with a mother who was an educationist and who had a fairly comfortable civil service job, right? 
So I grew up with the finer things of life. I'm sorry. But that's the truth. The problem today is that the society does not allow a poor kid to grow up and meet me at that level. The society has stopped. It has blocked social mobility. You know, there's a lock on upward mobility. That is the real problem. And so those of us who were privileged enough to grow up with some privilege and who can transfer that to our children must recognize that it is our duty to now transfer that beyond our children. So I ask myself, my child can take language classes today, but can that boy in Ikole Kitty can even see beyond Ikole to say he wants to learn Mandarin or to say he wants to learn French? Because when he's 30, I mean, it's a lot more difficult for me to learn languages than it is for a six-year-old. So those are the things that we have to resolve. And for me, the biggest way to remove that lock on upward mobility is early stage education. So getting kids properly, and I'm not talking about just putting them in a classroom and giving them notebooks. You know, how do they resolve critical issues? How do you help them solve social issues, right? How are they more um, socially intelligent? And it's by having kids play together, work together, do group assignments, you know, the pedagogy is there. It's available. You know, I don't think we're going to reinvent anything. You know, it's just applying those things and getting more kids to school, which is why I am a big fan. If there's any program that I love, it's the homegrown school feeding program. Because if for anything, it is getting kids in school and it is ensuring that there's a minimum nutritional value they get that allows their brains to even receive um, some of this knowledge that they're getting from the schools. Thank you very much, Abby. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. You can subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter on ontrap.substack.com. Again, ontrap.substack.com. And also get notified about future episodes 